0: for me the grass in other people's lawns is always literally greener which is the frustrating part of it and it's like i you know it's not like i don't know they're professional lawn green like keep my lawn green people like they make their living on that and it doesn't i it's nothing i'm it's not my fault and yet i'm the one that's going to get the hoa fine when the people come through and when Michelle comes through and assesses everybody's house with a little notepad.
1: You know who was passionate about HOAs?
0: Who? Al
1: Pacino. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. One for Costa. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show with me, Kyle Coster. I'm gonna to talk to my friend Kevin now. Tell me about some of your
0: sibling interactions growing up. My brother and I had like just, we had a fierce rivalry, but it was completely one-sided. So we have, I'll preface this by saying we have different dads. He's about, like now he, he's, I'm pushing like five, six maybe. If I'm like, if I'm lying and trying to impress someone, I'll say I'm five, seven, which is like, you know, people, the difference between five, six and five, seven, I feel like on Bumble is a thing. If I was, if I was trying to date right now, it would be like, you know, I would show up to dates and they'd be like, you said you were five, seven and you're clearly five, six, but you know, I, luckily I'm, I'm past sex. I'm married. So anyway, uh, but my brother's much bigger than I am. My brother's huge. He's like, he's jacked. He's, you know, goes to the gym all the time. He's about six foot one, maybe like two twenty, two fifteen, two twenty 20, 220 around there. And just like, you know, a rock. And it was, it was a situation where like, when I was growing up, everyone always told me like, Oh, you'll be bigger than your brother. So I'm like, you'll outgrow him someday. And like, you know, someday you'll beat him up and it never happened. I, uh, in fact, like, you know, I've only grown like meeker and like, have avoided conflict with the utmost effort in my life, uh, like especially physical com- conflict, the more and more as I get older. So that's really, you know, we have this big hulking brother and then me, and I was, and I, and, but there was still like this kind of sibling rivalry there because we both played sports and we both like, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're both dudes and, <laughs> And so like, uh, but I, I'm just gonna, I don't know what, I don't know what this podcast is rated, but I'm gonna, I'll just tell you, he beat the shit out of me growing up. And, uh, but that, but he was also like creative about, uh, about kicking my ass. So, um, but I also wanted so badly for us to be like buddies, like for it to be, I thought we were living in like a buddy movie and he thought we were living in like beyond Thunderdome. Um, so one story that sticks out of me, like trying to be buddies and him, like living in Thunderdome is, uh, he had got, he had procured at some point a BB gun. Okay. And like, we grew up in a very, like, you know, guns are not a thing that people own and have house. And, um, so for him to have this BB gun was like a big deal. And like, you know, we would take shots, like, you know, shooting Coke cans in the backyard and stuff. Cause our house in Illinois backed up to a big cornfield. And so we would like t- take turns doing that. So, and when I say take turns, I would take turns watching him. And then he would be like, this is how you do it, but then not let me do it, which is probably smart. Cause I was what, like 10, 11 at the time, maybe, maybe. And, um, you know, five foot, nothing, hundred nothing. I was, I was a teeny tiny fella and I spoke with a very squeaky voice. I don't have the rich baritone. I didn't have the rich baritone at 10 11 that I do now. Um, so we start. <laughs> so one day he's like, all right, I'm, I, I want to start doing target practice. So I need you to like, we got some poster board, we drew a target. And then he's like, all right, just go out there and hold the target. Right. And uh, so he's sitting there just, like, hauling off, like, you know, air pellet gun or whatever, just, like, busting this thing as I'm holding it. Horribly dangerous. I did have a Chicago Bears football helmet on that on the back said not for contact play.
1: Uh, Important question here. Around this era, one of the Bears' most well-known players was Kevin Butler, and he was known for having the single face mask. So please tell me you at least had – Two bars, Walter Payton style. It was a
0: two-bar, yeah. It was a Sid Luckman situation. It was not. uh, It was not not a Kevin Butler situation. But you know, it was it was very little protection. So after a while, we get bored of just the step, and we by we I mean he gets bored of just shooting at a static image. And um, so I I don't know who came up with the idea. As much as I want to say it was my brother, it was probably I probably instigated it wanting to be the buddy like wanting to be friends like ingratiate myself and my brother but we would strap pillows to me we had these like you know kind of lawn chair pillows if you can imagine that uh and we took duct tape and wrapped it around my arms wrapped it around my leg put one like uh like you know those old school umpire uh <laughs> pads in front and then one in back and then I had the the two bar helmet and uh, then we I wore maybe like four or five pairs of sweatpants or something like, like enough to get some real padding. And you can, hopefully you can see where this is going. I I was sent out into the yard running zigzags, and um, you know he was popping off and and shooting me at the time, uh, which the pillows stopped. I would say ninety percent of them, and then the other like ten percent that that hit my body actually. Uh, hit my body and and hurt like hell did you sustain any injuries I did I did I had welts um nothing like nothing got under the skin uh because I had enough like shirts on and things like that so nothing nothing got under the skin uh but yeah um I would say I definitely I I definitely walked away with some some minor injuries but my brother so my brother's like evil his his evil tormenting tactics would like evolve based on like what the scenario was. And so a lot of times like his favorite, you know, he would do the classic stuff, like, you know, pin my arms down and have a loogie that would drop, you know, almost to my face. And then like, oops, that one got away from me. Cool. But his, one of his favorite things to do would be to take a big, a big mouthful of peanut butter and pin me down and then like do this thing where he would like, Kind of lick his finger to get like this thin film of peanut butter on his finger. And then he would wipe it where, like, right under my nose, like, so it would be a peanut butter mustache. And I'm telling you, like, days later, I would still smell peanut butter just a little bit to the point where, like, now if I smell peanut butter, I'm like, nah, I'm out. No thanks. But I mean, I, this, this stuff, this is all hijinks. It had no psychological effect on me whatsoever, which is a great part of this story is, you know, I came away unscathed. I can't smell peanut butter without thinking about my tormentor, but uh, you know, for the most part unscathed.
1: Uh, I guess it raises questions about your brother. Um, not, I'm not to. I don't want to cast, dispersions on on his psyche and, and jumped to conclusions about what, what ended up happening in his life. But did everything
0: uh, turn out okay there? Yeah, absolutely. And I can confirm that he is a member of law enforcement today.
1: Life's kind of a funny thing. When I was really young, the first thing I wanted to be and the most intense thing I wanted to be was a shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. And I could think of nothing else. There was no plan B because I didn't have to have a plan B. And I remained steadfast in that goal until I was 10 or 11. And eventually it dawned on me as it does dawn on so many kids that it's just not going to happen. I don't have the physical tools. Um, My parents were actually very helpful in that point. They didn't crush my dreams, but they kind of like laid out the odds. And I remember my dad told me, It's going to have to do with how your body develops. Now, remember at that time, I thought I was going to be 6'1", so it was a totally different ballgame. But I kind of prepared myself to think, okay, well, I'm probably not going to be the star over there at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. And it's kind of a hard realization for a kid to give up on their childhood dreams Uh, as a father now. I'm kind of dreading the day my kid realizes he probably won't get to be the number one thing that he wants to be, which is a superhero, because that's impossible. Uh, So I'm not looking forward to negotiating that part of his life, even though it is really important. But I kind of took an assessment and I decided, you know, if I can't get to the major leagues as a baseball player, the one thing that I'm also interested in that could get me there is writing. I learned what a beat writer did. I learned that there were people who broadcasted the game and I was always interested in their job. And I kind of saw it as like this shortcut or this other avenue where it was just like, well, this is something where I feel like I have some natural talent at. Um, and if I work hard, maybe I can get there. And then that's became that became my new thing that this is for sure what I'm going to do. And I never really considered that I wasn't going to do it through high school, it was always, I'm going to major in journalism because that's just what you did if you wanted to be a newspaper reporter. Um, But then I got to college and I started to see as so many people do, the difference between being a medium-sized fish in a small pond and being a medium-sized fish in an ocean and start to feel that like, oh, there's so much competition in my own department. And then there's all these other colleges. And then there's all these other established people in all these cities. And it's just like, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this isn't going to work out. And I think everybody kind of hits that rut. Um, the second part of college or the middle part of college where it's like, Oh, this is going to be done in a little bit. And then what am I going to do? What am I going to be? And I kind of had a crisis of confidence and, um, you know, it wasn't that bad, but it was kind of like, do I really want to go compete? Uh, Do I really think I can do this? Not just professionally, but as a person. I I lived a fairly sheltered um, childhood. I didn't take a lot of risks. I didn't spend a lot of time traveling. Um, So it was a really big deviation of character and a big deal for me when my buddy Brent, who played on the baseball team with me, and I decided to, on a whim, take a road trip out to Boston to see the Detroit Tigers play the Red Sox. Uh, It was in 2006, and the Tigers for my entire life had been terrible, just an abominable franchise. In 2003, they lost 119 games. Uh, They were saved, tying the record only by a uh, walk-off in the final game. But in 2006, Jim Leland was the manager and they jumped out to a 76 and 36 uh, start 40 games over 500. They just kept winning and the state was so alive in a way that I had never felt that before. And we started to say that everybody had tiger fever and this tiger fever kind of just pushed us to get in a car and go and drive overnight. I remember we didn't really have a plan. We knew a guy had an internship uh out in Boston, who said that we could crash at his place, kind of in the, yeah, you can stop by if uh if you're out here away, not the please come stay at my place for the week that you don't pick up on when you're that young. Uh you just barge in and do it. And I remember we stopped at Niagara Falls at midnight and saw the lights. And then I remember driving through the dark in upstate New York and and getting into those northeastern hills and 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 being like pretty tired. It's four in the morning. Uh, We need another energy drink. And um, it was kind of like, I guess we're really doing this. And we encountered a very early sunrise because I didn't know that the sun came up so easy. I did not know that the sun came up so early on the East Coast. And I remember driving into Boston during rush hour, blinding sun in my face, crazy traffic and being like, oh, God, what am I doing at the end of this 12 or 13 hour drive from Toledo, whatever it was at that point? Uh, And it was really hair-raising, that final stretch, those final miles to get where we needed to go. Uh, But eventually we did. And I crashed on the couch for a little bit after our buddy let us in as he was on his way to work. Uh, And we were just the derelicts who had nothing to do in the the middle of the day until the baseball game later on that night. And about 3 o'clock, we woke up and... Headed down to Yawkey Way, the surrounding area around Fenway Park, and it was great. It was my first time there. I could not believe uh, the ecosystem that operated around it with the bars. I wasn't used to that. And we hopped in one, and it was very empty. The pregame show was on the television, and there were a few other people in uh, getting their drinks. And so naturally, we started talking to them. And it turned out that they were friends of Justin Verlander, who at that point was in his second year with the Detroit Tigers. Um, We knew he was going to be a fantastic pitcher, but at that point he was very raw. Um, But these guys had gone to college with him and they knew exactly what he had in store. And we hung out with them. Nothing too memorable happened, but we drank for several hours and they told us stories about him. And it was at that time when we filed into the stadium and we went to our seats in center field and we were watching this guy who was the exact same age as we were out there on that mound at Fenway park, a very hostile crowd in a tough spot. And I remember his start. He like battled. I think he went five innings and gave up maybe one earned, uh, stranded some runners. It wasn't this like easy breezy thing, but he, he paid his dues and he got out of there and he gave his team a chance to win. And I remember going home from that game that night. I can't remember who won or if that even mattered. And I remember having this palpable sensation that, look, if this guy who is my peer can do this in this totally different arena that I wanted to do, I realized Well, people still do that first dream. So there's no reason that people still can't do that second dream. And we took that mentality. I think that my friend Brent felt it as well because he came from a similar background. And we spent our next three days in Boston just visiting everything, doing everything, enjoying that freedom that comes with it being your first time in a city that moves really fast as a quasi adult and trying to figure out, can I handle this? both occupationally and socially. And it's a small sample size. So we probably made our decisions based on not all the information as you rarely do at that age. But I remember on the drive home, we were different. We were just different guys. Like we had that experience. And for me, it really hammered home that this was something that I could do, whether it be in Boston, whether it be in New York, whether it be in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just something that I could do. It was something that I would regret forever if I never gave a chance. Um, And in a lot of ways, it was the most formative thing that happened to me in my college years and and pushed me uh, in my decision making going forward because I graduated from college and I knew that I was going to save up a little money and then move to Chicago, even if I didn't have a job lined up and have enough money for like, two or three months and just see what happened. And if I failed, I was very lucky to have a supportive family to come back to, a place to stay. I wasn't going to be ruined financially and stuff like that. And so I moved to Chicago where we met, got a job answering phones uh, in the prep sports department at the Sun-Times. And my career has certainly not risen to the level that I imagined um, when I was a kid. But it's flirted with that, and it's allowed me to be very close to that, and the occasional perks of that lifestyle. And um, it's—I didn't realize—I did not realize all of this at the time, and I only—I only started to think about this, and I only started to realize this because I just spoke with Ben Verlander, who is Justin Verlander's brother, obviously, and a baseball player himself, who was drafted by the Tigers and spent some time in the minor league system and is now a new hire at Fox sports, working on the digital side of things. And he's essentially doing the same thing that I'm doing after pursuing my first dream. And the myopicness of all this is not lost on me. Um, but then again, it is my podcast. So I will tell the story the way I want to tell it. And I it was just, it was just this amazing realization to me Uh how life changes and how your initial goals transform and how you end up doing something that maybe it might be what you always wanted to do, but is doing it in a different way. One of the things that he told me, and you'll hear on this interview, is that he thinks he was born to tell stories about baseball. And I think deep down, that's something that I feel in myself as well. And what a blessing it is for both of us to be able to do that in our different arenas.
0: All right. That's my story. How, how many years after your trip to Boston, did you find yourself in uh, Leland's office? Oh God.
1: Uh, yeah. And then three or four years later, after that first trip out to Boston, when I remember shaking Jim Leland's hand in the dugout and saying the corniest thing possible. Uh, Cause you never got to meet people who were famous without that access or, or were the athletes. I remember saying, Detroit, thanks you. And it was a lame thing to say. And and I still think about it today. I was just like, Oh God, I was like, what a loser. But three or four years later, I was in Lewin's office and writing about something that happened in the game. And I actually distinctly remember writing about a Verlander start where he threw like 126 pitches. Um, so I got from the center field bleachers to being 20 feet from stardom and it all kind of worked out. And now time to pay the bills. Ben Verlander is a former professional baseball player. He recently joined Fox sports as an MLB contributor to the new Fox sports app, foxsports.com, and social platforms. He was gracious enough to answer some questions that I had. What do you need to do at Fox in order to consider yourself a success there?
2: Um, to be honest with you, and, and it may be just a, a cheesy answer, but just, like, continue to, to grow. Um, this is, you know, I'm basically... A, a couple of years out of pro ball. And this is like my, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning into this and I've, I've always known, um, this is what I was supposed to do. Um, I'm supposed to, to talk. I love the game of baseball and I love playing the game of baseball, but I, I really believe like I was put on this earth to talk about it and to tell stories and, and to, to attract people to the game. And I think if I can just continue to grow and, in so many fields, you know, I'm learning, I'm, I'm learning a lot of things as well, you know, with this Fox Sports Digital team, where there's a lot of, it's multi-platform, you know, I'm learning to write, I'm learning to to talk behind a mic, I'm learning to talk in front of a camera, there's a lot of things we're doing. So I think, you know, every article I write, I'm taking some pieces from it, I'll, I'll go back and I'll, I'll read it and I'll take pieces from it and, and realize what's good and take it to the next one. And with the the watch party for the World Series, I would watch back every single game and take pieces of it that I thought were good and, and learn from that and take it to the next one. And I think as long as I can do that and continue to every platform that I'm on, whether it be writing, whether it be on a podcast, whether it be on a screen, just taking the positives and learning and growing from that and wanting to be the best that I can be in this field um, and just see how far this can take us. And, and I, I love the people I'm surrounded around this Fox Sports Digital team. And I think just growing is, is the answer to your question. And, and I mean that. Like, I when I'm talking about this game, and, and I realize that I'm in a really unique, like, position, you know, to, to have been around Major League Baseball since I was 12, but to also play professional baseball for five years and to be, you know, to become I, – I have so many – cool stories and, and so much passion and love for the game. I genuinely, when I start talking about the game of baseball, just get goosebumps, like being able to tell cool stories. Like it is my passion. I am so passionate about it. And I I know that I can, I can spread my love and my joy and my positivity of the game to other people. And, and that just really makes me pumped up. And, and I, I don't say that lightly, like, I'm, I'm really, really excited, and I think that something special is going to come from all of this.
1: In my opinion, one of the things that baseball coverage is lacking is the player perspective, not necessarily on labor, but just on the day-to-day. Is that something that you think you're going to be able to bring?
2: A little bit like you just said, baseball has done a poor job in the media aspect of just in general, Um, advertising the game, showcasing the game of baseball. It's been a very old school uh, type of, you know, of showing the game off. And I I think it's time to change that. And I think what uh, Fox is doing with this Fox Sports digital team is it's bringing on a lot of, and as I've gotten to know more and more people that I'll be working with, we're all very similar in our certain fields. Obviously I'm major league baseball, but, you know, meeting other people in other departments, we're all very similar. It tends to be younger. It tends to be good people, um, charismatic people. And I, I think with the baseball side of things, that is what I bring to the table is being able to, you know, you know, just whether it's as simple as just hitting up a buddy of mine that plays for this team or this team, and having a conversation with him that people don't normally get to see almost, almost like a, a locker room sort of conversation. Like, okay, I'm sitting in my locker room, getting ready for the game. I've got so-and-so sitting right next to him. This is what we're going to talk about. You know, the, the pitcher that day, um, you know, the game, the game, the day before things like that, that aren't just your typical, you know, here are some highlights from the night before. Like, I, I really think, just meaningful conversation, just conversation that people want to hear that people don't normally get to hear. Um, I think that's something I'm really looking forward to and something that um, baseball from the media side needs is, is getting to see conversations like that and, and feeling on a more personal level with players.
1: I completely agree. I think it's great for media that a 29 year old is going to be providing coverage. And I also think it's great for baseball. How are you going to use your age as a strength in this role?
2: I think my age it does play a, a big difference. I think you know a lot of a lot of those guys you mentioned are obviously established big league vets. But what, what separates me is being the locker room culture has changed tremendously over the last at X amount of years, it has changed tremendously. And, you know, the a majority of my friends that that I played with coming up through the minors are now in the big leagues. So I think, you know, there's definitely a different conversation to be had and a, a conversation that that some older players that are out of the game may not have been able to have. So I, I'm I'm personally really excited to be able to do this because I feel like I can have conversations um, whether whatever it may be, whether I open up the, the Rolodex and look for a name to, to talk to and then have like a personal conversation with that person and feel like, you know, we're peers. We played together. We're the same age. And I feel like you, you end up getting um, a, a better, I don't even want to use the word interview. I feel like you end up having a better conversation and just being able to let them take me through a journey of, of, the, of questions Um, Instead of it being like an older player that I don't want to say, I don't want to say out of touch because they're not, but just, you know, being the same age as a bunch of guys and, and being in the locker room with them, I feel like allows me to have a different conversation with them and a conversation that people would be very interested in.
1: When you made the transition and you were asked to provide content for the first time, did it make you nervous and were the nerves like when you played or is it a totally different thing mentally?
2: So the first thing that um, that I did with Fox was the World Series watch party. And funny story about that, you know, I was nervous leading up to it, um, but I knew, like, I don't know, it's hard to, I, I knew I wanted to do this. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I knew this is what I'm good at. But there were still a little nerves leading up to it. You know, it's the first thing I've done. And it's a huge, you know, situation. Uh, game seven of the NLCS was actually the first thing I did. And I remember we were counting down. We go live. I wasn't allowed in studio because of, you know, COVID regulations at the time. So uh, I ended up being in studio for the World Series. But for this, we were in an Airbnb. We rented out an Airbnb. And we're doing it. And we're counting down to go live. And I'm the one bringing us in. And I start and somebody comes running out of the room, a uh, producer, and says, I'm muted. They they hadn't turned on my mic properly. And to be honest with you, it like, it sort of helped in a way. It was like, you know what? Like, this is just, you know, like, so what now? Like, let's just, let's just get it turned on and go. And it, and it kind of calmed all of the nerves in that first situation.
1: I have a question for you on baseball reference. You're listed as a right fielder and a relief pitcher, but I'm two <laughs> relief appearances uh, to your name. So how did, how did you finagle that?
2: To be quite honest with you, I didn't know I was listed as a relief pitcher on baseball reference until you just told me that, but I absolutely love the fact that I am. I, that's incredible. I, I was not um, the story behind that though, is just, you know, when my team was getting our ass kicked or something, the, the coach would always just go around and say like, all right, like, um, did anybody want to pitch? And I'd always be like, yeah, me, me, me. I, I pitched in college. And then he'd just say, okay. And I, that happened twice. Um, and the fact that I'm listed on baseball reference, I, I love that. I love
1: that. Yeah. It looks like you're in, in, in two appearances, you posted uh, an even nine ERA the good news is that you walked three people. So obviously getting out there and getting used to the mound can, can be an issue, but you got two strikeouts. Do you remember? Yes, I was
2: making sure you're in the good news is, is that I've struck out somebody in every single inning I have ever pitched professionally. So.
1: Because all news is local. I have to ask this as someone who lives in grand Rapids, Michigan, Um, what you have any fond memories of, uh, the West Michigan Whitecaps? How'd you find the nightlife and the restaurant scene in Grand Rapids? And what was, what was your impression of the year you spent here?
2: So I, I always, I always say this to anybody that asks about my professional experience that playing in Grand Rapids was, uh, the best experience of, of everywhere I went. It was by far, um, the most fun in terms of on the field, um, Everybody, you know, I was, it was just awesome. We'd, we'd get thousands of fans a night, Lakeland, for example, you'd go there and be playing in front of, you know, a few hundred fans instead of quite a few thousand. I loved my time in Grand Rapids. Um, and a, a bunch of guys on the team would, were getting in trouble in terms of not in trouble, but they were going out a lot because it's, it's a great town, great nightlife. I actually had a rule with myself. I never, uh, I never drank in uh in season if there was a game that next day and that actually started in college I, I made a um i was never really a big never really a big drinker but going into my junior year um you know you can get you can get hazed in, in college baseball by your older teammates and i made a rule with myself that i was not going to drink in, in season and i ended up going on to become an all-american that year so transitioned that into Pro Bowl. And as you know, we were playing 142 games in 150 days. So there's always a game that next day. So I wouldn't say I was able to fully take in the nightlife of, uh, of Grand Rapids, but I know a bunch of my teammates were. Um, but by far, that was, that was the best time of my professional career was, was playing in Grand Rapids.
1: I have another Tigers-related question, too, as it relates um, to your brother. I think it was an interesting phenomenon when he left how the fan base almost universally rooted for him to get a ring in the same way they did that with Max Scherzer. Is that something that's admirable or is that something that's a little bit lame because they were losing a bunch of games?
2: It's really cool uh, how it happened and it is very admirable. And, you know, the Tigers had such a good team there for that, you know, a period of what seemed to be almost eight years. They had an incredible team. And then there was uh, just a couple years of that team that was really good with that rotation of Justin, Max, David Price, Anibal. And, you know, I think the fans felt bad that they, they couldn't win a championship. And I know um, my brother, one of my brother's biggest, um, you know, I don't want to say regret, but one of the, you know, the, one of the things in his career that he wishes was different was he wishes he won a championship for Mr. Illich. Um, before he passed away and I know a lot of the guys on the team feel the same way they wanted to bring a championship to to the city of Detroit and to Mr. Illich and to the fans and I think the fans felt that I think that team was different and that rotation was incredible and to see all of those guys move on instead of the city and the fans saying "Ah, man like we missed our chance like uh, whatever, they all rooted for those guys to go out there and basically spread their wings and get a ring. And it's pretty cool. It was pretty cool to watch. And also pretty cool to see it happen. I know it meant a lot to my brother to, to see that. And, you know, you, you see it on social media, you see it and you, you hear people saying, hey, I'm from Detroit. And, you know, I really want to, we're, we're rooting for you. And I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a it's an interesting franchise, and it I was really happy to read uh, a piece you wrote about, um, you know, being able to interact with Al Kaline before he passed. Um, what what were your recollections of doing that? And when you get to a certain level of baseball, do you ever get used to meeting the people that you grew up watching, or these icons that existed as these larger? than life people when you're on the same field with them or playing with them or, or standing around during batting practice, or does it always feel like, Oh, I'm talking to this person. I can't believe it.
2: So I've always been just a fan of the game. And I, I, I know who these players are, even, even the older players. And I'll never forget uh, the, the Mr. K line story is a a funny one. When I've been around major league baseball since, you know, my brother made his debut and uh, his rookie year was 06 so I was 14 years old and I remember being in the suite for a World Series game and mr Kaline and his wife come walking in and uh my, fam- my my dad stands up and shakes his hand and I know who it is and I stand up and shake his hand and he goes oh, it's nice to meet you Ben I'm sure you have no idea who I am but I guess I used to be okay at baseball and his wife slaps him. Al, you were a great baseball player. And I was like, I I know who you are, Mr. Kalen. And it's very nice to meet you. And, you know, that was kind of my encounter with him. And then fast forward to me playing professionally. And I, I think this is what makes my story so unique, is I, you know, I'm so much younger, but have been around the game for such a long time. And then to be able to play professionally and have my own stories. Um, my pre-draft workout was in Detroit right after my junior year of college. And I go up to Detroit and it's at Comerica park and there's, I don't know, maybe 50 guys there, maybe 25 position players and we're running, we're throwing from the outfield and then we're hitting. And Mr. K line is there and I get into the, the cage to start hitting on the field and I'm hitting great. I'm hitting balls the other way. I'm hitting home runs to left field. I feel great. I come walking out of the cage and Mr. Kaline calls me over and I go running over feeling all good about myself. And he goes, Hey Ben, little nervous in there, huh? And I'm like, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Really, really nervous. That was a struggle. And meanwhile, you know, I think I was doing great. Um, and then, you know, from there, I obviously ended up getting drafted by the Tigers and ended up in the organization and just got to become pretty close with him over the years, whether it be in spring training, just eating with him in the cafeteria, or seeing him throughout the year, um, it was really cool, and I never got I never got used to seeing guys like that around. And I became close with uh, Alan Trammell as well. Um, and w- I just always would pick their brains. They're they're such great people, which I idolized them. I idolized them because yeah, they were great on the field. But both of those guys, Mr. K-Line and Alan Trammell, are two of the most incredible human beings you you can ever meet. And I, I just think that's the coolest thing because you can meet them on the street and not know that they're Hall of Fame baseball players.
1: What is the conversation like in the dugout and how many different directions can it take?
2: Well, one, you're 100% right. It's those conversations that take place in the dugout and in the locker room. Uh, that's what you miss the most. And man, I, I, I could go on for for hours and hours about all the stories I have in the dugout. But I I know some that stick out to me are, um, you know, one in the one year in the dugout in Lakeland. Uh, I don't know if you know who Gene Roof is. He's our Uh, outfield.
1: Like I don't know every first and third base (laughs) coach that's ever matriculated through the Tiger system.
2: (laughs) Gene Roof was our outfield coordinator in Detroit when, when I was coming up and he was in town one day and um, we were in the dugout just talking and he just started going on this tangent about playing for Sparky Anderson. And I'm, I, I'm really good at being able to be in the moment and, and take something in like when it's happening, I've always kind of had a, a, uh, like a weird way of being able to do that. I remember when I was in elementary school, the last day of elementary school, I walked out, I was in the doors and I knew I'd never go back. And I looked in the doorway took a deep breath, thought, man, this is cool, and walked out. So I'm having this conversation with Gene Roof, and he's telling me about Sparky Anderson. I'm like, oh, my God, I need to, like, this is really cool. And he was just telling me all these stories about playing for him and going in the clubhouse and, you know, not being one of the stars on the team, um, but talking to me about the way that Sparky would treat the stars And players would go up to him and say, you know, like you treat so and so differently than me. And Sparky Anderson would say, "Uh, yeah, like that's because they're they're my guys. Like they deserve to be treated differently. They've earned that right. Um, And just telling me some of the stories about him as a manager that you never get to hear ever. And just sitting there taking that in, uh, I thought was really cool to hear that story. Um, And then from the player side of things, I remember sitting in the dugout one spring training with uh, with uh, Miguel Cabrera and we were talking about hitting. And (laughs) I ended up walking away, realizing that Miguel Cabrera is the most brilliant baseball mind, like of all time. Basically, he knows what the pitcher is going to be throwing before the pitcher knows what he's going to be throwing. And I just remember one day he was telling me about, yeah, I had an at bat early in a game and the pitcher threw me a slider. And I swung and missed at it um, and like, just looked like an, looked like an idiot, basically. Like I, I just flailed at it and he was like, and I did that on purpose. Like I, I was a little bit fooled on the pitch and took the worst swing I possibly could have um, to, to make it look like I was extremely fooled. And he was like, and I knew later in the game, I was going to get that exact pitch. And he was like, I walked up later in the game. uh, First pitch of the bat comes, same exact situation. I sat on that slider that I looked like a fool on earlier in the game, and I hit a home run on it. And he's like, I, you know, that's, that's the way I think about baseball. It's not what is this pitcher going to throw. It's I know what these pitchers are going to do. I'm setting them up from the first at bat of the game. And from that moment on, it was like I have been looking at hitting so wrong. Like this is Miguel Cabrera. He was just coming off his like triple crown year. Like this guy is, is, is a genius. Um, and like, it it just kind of showed me how, how far I had to go as a player, um, to be able obviously, you you know, you can't always be on the level of Miguel Cabrera, but just like the mentality, the mental side of baseball is so huge.
1: It strikes me that, you know, I mean, obviously Miguel Cabrera is maybe the best right-handed hitter who's ever played major league baseball, but what he was telling you to do is basically take agency and acting like you're in charge. So, so often the pitcher feels like he's in charge because he has the ball. And I think as a batter, you have to learn that you're just as important to the ad bat as the pitcher, even though they start the action, you try to start the action and try to dictate what they're doing. And it's funny you mentioned that about him because after watching him play for decades, it's clear when he does that. And, you know, and as time has gone by, he still thinks he can do that, and maybe he can't do that as much because he doesn't have uh, the margin for error. But it's really interesting to hear that, like that thought process. And I can see where that would be very helpful to someone and totally be like totally change your perspective on what your goals are as a, as a batter.
2: That 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 conversation that I had with him was one of the most important conversations to me professionally because it made me realize, um, you know, at a certain level everybody has a good baseball swing. When you get to the, when you get to the level of professional baseball, everybody can play. Um, and it really kind of becomes the, the mental side of things that, um, that, you know, make you different from the rest. Um, and that conversation was so big for me and to be able to have that conversation and to realize I need to get to a certain level mentally um, I need to be able to go 0 for 12 and be able to be okay with that and show up the next day and be just as good mentally as I would be if I was four for four that previous day. And that is the hardest part of professional baseball for me is being able to adapt and being able to be okay with with failure. Because for the first time in my life, and I don't want to say like for the first time in my life, you know, I I struggled because that's not true, but it it kind of is in a baseball sense. I was always, you know, one of the best on the team and you know, it, me struggling would be 0 for 4 the one day and then you know I'd go 2 for 4 the next day. But in pro ball, every single player is going to go through an 0 for 20 at some point. How do you adapt to that? How do like how do you how do you separate yourself mentally? And having that conversation just made me realize like to be the best like that's where you have to be. And it is incredible. It was incredible to, to have, to be able to have that conversation with one of the best.
1: You strike me as extremely even keeled um, and laid back, but what's the, what's the fieriest you've ever gotten on the field? Uh, You are you, have you ever thrown a helmet? Uh, I, I'm just trying to trying to wrap my mind around what it looks like when you're really mad or we're really mad on the baseball field.
2: So one of my biggest regrets in baseball is that I didn't get thrown out of a game in this one situation that I'm about to tell you, you are correct in your assessment. I am very even keeled. Um, I do not really get super, I get frustrated internally. I don't let it boil over. I don't yell it. One, I think it's just disrespectful to yell it. like, they're supposedly trying their best. This one instance, I know this guy wasn't, um, but I don't just like, I don't like yelling at people. I don't like throwing stuff, but there was one instance and I was playing in high A, we were in Clearwater and it was the first day that the the pitch clock went into effect. Um, you know, so we knew it was coming, <clears throat> but this was the first day that it's like, okay, this is in effect make sure you're doing everything you're supposed to pitchers, make sure you're ready to throw batters, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is we have to do. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's not a problem for me. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to take my time anyway. I get in the box and I do what I need to do. So it's like the sixth or seventh inning. It's later in the game and I come up to the plate with runners on second and third and two outs. I get in the box and it's a, it's a, Full count. So full count, second and third, two outs. I get up to the plate and I get back in the box, three, two. I'm like waving my bat and getting ready to go. And the umpire goes, "Time, time. you, you're out. And points at me. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm out? And he goes, um, and I, I didn't notice that we didn't have this long discussion. I just threw my hands up and started, like, started yelling at the guy. Cause it's a big situation in the game. I, it goes down as a strikeout. Like at this point, the guy's affecting my career and my livelihood. I get a strikeout on my record runners in scoring position. So I'm like, are you, there were some expletives shared. Um, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, we can't, that's not like, we're not doing that. And he goes, yes, we are. This is, this is what I'm telling you is happening. You're out. You, you," and I, I end up finding out later that the guy was saying I wasn't alert and ready in the box. I have a video. I have a video uh, that is on my Instagram. It was sent into Major League Baseball. I will remember this guy forever. His name was Justin, the umpire. And I am not a fan of his. I do not like him. And this was sent into Major League Baseball. He was saying I wasn't alert and ready while I'm literally staring at the pitcher, holding my bat up, waiting for him to throw the pitch. I was waiting for him. And I just, I didn't end up getting thrown out, but I like threw my bat up in the air and like chucked it to the side. Cause it's the last out of the inning. I take my helmet off and I like swirl it to the dugout. And that is the extent of me being, that is the most pissed off I was ever in my career at somebody. And all I could do was basically say, are you kidding me and throw my helmet?
1: And now a special
0: comment on Hometown Heroes. Here's Kevin Allen. I don't know whether former Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Ken Anderson deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. A cursory glance at his body of work would suggest that he does, but I'm no expert. And besides, Halls of Fame are notoriously weird and finicky outfits. What I do know, however, is that there's a vocal group of letter writers in Anderson's hometown of Batavia, Illinois, who believe wholeheartedly that he belongs in Canton. Anderson and I share a hometown, And as an aspiring athlete and sports fanatic who suited up in Batavia Bulldogs Garnet and Gold a time or two, I was acutely aware of Anderson's body of work and his place in the NFL record books. His mere existence as a Super Bowl starting QB who once walked our high school's halls and held the same animosity toward our rival, the Geneva Vikings, was mind-blowing. His presence in NFL lore gave us something that every small town kid needs, hope. Anderson's story was compelling because his origins so closely mirrored our own. He grew up like many of us did, the kid of working-class parents. He and his friend Dan had yards that backed up to one another's growing up, and they, like me and my pals, were sports-obsessed. Dan, incidentally, would go on to be Basketball Hall of Fame player and coach Dan Issel. That these two endured the same brutal winters as we did, played on the same fields and courts as we did, it made us believe that anything was possible. It also made us aware that there were exotic places outside of Illinois, like Cincinnati, where Anderson spent his entire 16-year career, and Denver, where Issel played and coached the majority of his career. Their success was the entire town's success. For so long, all we knew about athletes depended on what was included in their trading cards. And I remember flipping to the back of Anderson's Tops card and seeing the name of the hometown that we shared and the pride that it instilled. It's no secret that athletes have the power to inspire us. Underrated, however, is the power of story to drive us, guide us, and serve as our North Star. Coaches and teachers who knew these guys sang their praises. Parents who went to school with them told tales of their hijinks and heroism. A few of our classmates were their actual relatives. If these guys could find success, along with their younger classmate, the late great broadcaster Craig Sager, then Jesus, what the hell was stopping the rest of us? When you grow up in a small town, you tend to have one of two mentalities about the future I can't wait to get out of here, or I'll spend my entire life here. A statement that's shared either happily or unhappily. I was the former. I left Batavia at 18, and because my parents moved shortly thereafter, my trips home tend to be limited to a few curious Zillow alerts, the occasional Google Street View scamper down Wilson Street, and a quick search to confirm that the Elms, makers of the best fried chicken in northern Illinois, is still in business. No matter where you stand on that stay-or-go spectrum, We all have that innate desire to be remembered, and perhaps even revered. Yet so few of us achieve the influence and impact that the hometown hero enjoys. Where I live now in Florida is a short drive from IMG Academy. For those who are unfamiliar with it, it helps to think of IMG as Hogwarts for elite athletes from all over the world. The majority of these grads go on to compete in Division I college athletics. Many of them pursue their sport professionally. As I watched the IMG football team on ESPN this past fall as they whipped up on the school where my wife teaches, Venice High, I thought of Ken Anderson, Dan Issel, Craig Sager, and the other phenomenal athletes in Batavia's history, and I'm glad they didn't leave for better training facilities, cooler locker rooms, and an endless supply of Under Armour gear. I'm not saying the IMGs of the world are bad for sports everyone should have the opportunity to experience nurture at their level of need. But if they remake Hoosiers, I doubt IMG would play the protagonist. Sports doesn't play the role that it once did in my life, but I've also come to realize that hometown heroes aren't limited to sports. In my own graduating class and those ahead and behind, I see so many contributing members of society. Some stayed in Batavia or the surrounding area. Some went on to become educators and healthcare workers, whose impact in the time of COVID was felt this past year arguably more than that of elite athletes. We may never know the impact our legacy leaves on the people around us, but if we can at least strive to match the greatness of our hometown heroes in whatever we do, it's safe to say that we'll make our alma mater proud, and perhaps even make the world a better place. And to the powers that be in Canton, and on behalf of the 26,250 people who are lucky enough to call Batavia home, I think it's probably time to get Ken Anderson fitted for his gold jacket.
1: The Kyle Coster Show is produced by Sean Daly, art from Kevin Gomez. It is powered by The Big Lead and Minute Media.